You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Researchers have been busy defining neural network models of mental illness for decades. The progress that has been made in defining the areas of the brain that play a large role in depression are leading to exciting new approaches for diagnosis and treatment. Welcome, I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is Dr. Helen Mayberg, Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Mayberg studies over the past 20 years in neural network models of mood regulation in health and disease have led to the recent development of a new intervention for treatment-resistant patients using deep brain stimulation. Welcome, Dr. Mayberg. Good to be with you. As it became clear that Area 25 plays a significant role in depression, you also began working with some colleagues who were doing groundbreaking work using deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's. Tell us about their work and why it made so much sense to generalize their findings to your work with depression. Well, you know, one of the things that's very clear in research is nothing's ever totally new. It's really about being in the right place at the right time and actually putting together available technologies. And one of the lucky breaks we had at the point that our models of depression were becoming more focused was the fact that for the previous 10 years, there had been a whole line of research in the study of movement disorder and the use of brain stimulation to modulate basal ganglia dysfunctional circuits in Parkinson's patients who had become refractory to dopamine medications. So again, I mean, this goes again back to our earliest studies on Parkinson's and depression. When I was at Hopkins, Maywin DeLong and his colleagues were studying the intricacies of the neural circuits of the basal ganglia that regulate motor control. And they had models of Parkinson's disease that they could develop and actually test how do drugs work, what were the nodes in this motor control circuit, what changed when an animal or a person became Parkinsonian. And that was the basic science groundwork for why should stimulation in the subthalamic nucleus or globus pallidus alleviate Parkinsonian tremor and rigidity when Cinemat or other dopamine agonist drugs failed to do so after they had done so for many years. And so the notion of a circuit model was, quite frankly, an experimental model that we had there at Hopkins with our colleagues. And so in the intervening years between when we first were studying depression and Parkinson's and later when we were doing cognitive behavioral therapy and drug effects in Toronto. In fact, DBS for Parkinson's disease had become a routine procedure. And what is required is the ability to stereotactically and precisely localize a very tiny wire into a very precise location in the brain. And in Parkinson's disease, that's done not only with MRI and visualization of the anatomy, but also with physiology and knowledge about the electrophysiology of the subthalamic nucleus. There was no data about Area 25 and its electrophysiology, but we had a lot of information about the nodes 
and the other remote areas in the brain that Area 25 talked to. So literally, it was trying to determine is could we apply this well-developed technology used for Parkinson's to a different circuit in the brain? So same technology, different circuit. And you were able to try deep brain stimulation on a few severely depressed patients. Exactly. So Dr. Andres Lozano, who's a very well-known stereotactic neurosurgeon for many applications of DVS for neurological disease, he was at my institution in Toronto. And literally, because we had this network mapped out, we met at a neurosurgical meeting where I was giving a more general view of depression in the brain to these neurosurgeons in the context of actually lesions of the brain that are done for intractable patients in very rare circumstances, cingulotomy, for instance, and raising the possibility of could one apply brain stimulation in the same way that brain stimulation was applied in Parkinson's instead of doing lesions. And literally, you know, we sat down to discuss, is it possible that you could target this brain area safely? And Dr. Lozano said that in his mind, this was a targetable brain location. And we basically used the logic and the current state-of-the-art in Parkinson's disease, including just what was the thought on how to use the frequency of stimulation to turn down the brain or turn up the brain. You know, it turned out it was probably wrong based on what's now known about DBS mechanisms, but actually set up a hypothetical kind of model system and said, if we can go here safely, here's where we'd want to go, here's what we'd want to do, and then developed a protocol and proceeded to recruit patients who, quite frankly, had failed everything else. So we wanted patients who had been sick long enough so that we wouldn't run into the natural history of the illness, which is that over time, many patients recover spontaneously so that we could ensure that patients had been given a fair shot at every available treatment so that we weren't jumping the gun and offering them something that actually not only might not work, might have unexpected side effects. So we really wanted them to have maximized all available conventional treatments before being considered potential candidate to try this out. Right. These are genuinely treatment-resistant people. And I noticed in your most recent study that you excluded suicidal patients. Why is that? Again, that's more of a practical situation. You know, when you start an experiment, so even now, the second paper reports on 20 patients followed out a year, but this is still in the context of an open study, proof of principle, safety. You know, what is it that happens when you implant in this location and apply constant current for a continuous period of time? What happens? And are there side effects that develop over time? Do you lose the effect? Does the effect happen rapidly in everyone? Is there a graded effect? Because we really didn't have the same markers that are observed in Parkinson's, where as soon as you put it in and turn on the current at a particular frequency, tremor stops. You know you're in the right place. Right. We didn't know if we would have an acute effect. And even when we do, we didn't know if it was prognostic 
of an optimal location or prognostic of a long-term effect. So when you're trying to think about the upside and the downside to an experiment, one wants to make sure that a patient can get through the experiment because you really have to set up the null hypothesis that this isn't going to work and that one wants to have patients that even though they're extremely and devastatingly ill, what's remarkable about patients who haven't killed themselves up to this point is that they're in a stable, almost purgatory state. They're so ill so long that that's really all they know. So, in fact, they're in extremis because none of us would want to be that ill, but in fact, they're in sort of a low equilibrium state. So, while there is no depressed patient in that state who doesn't have thoughts much of the time, you know, if this is how I'm going to be indefinitely and I can't imagine myself any other way, I really would be better off dead. That is very different from having an active suicidal plan and intent. And I think from a pragmatic point of view, if we don't know what the natural history of our intervention is, seeing this as a acute treatment or a rescue treatment would be totally beyond the data. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Helen Mayberg, professor of psychiatry and neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. And Dr. Mayberg, you've had four years now to follow the first patients who received this treatment. How are they doing? Well, actually, the first patient was operated in May of 2003. And in fact, she had a battery replacement in June of this year and is doing well. So that patients who did well have continued to do well, but it's very clear that this isn't like you correct the problem with treatment for a while. It really is behaving like some sort of a pacemaker. And I say that not mechanistically, but the fact that if the battery wears out or if it turns off, after about two weeks you lose the effect that patients become slow We've been looking at Emory at some blinded discontinuation studies where we actually plan to turn off the electrode at a point in time when patients are well, and it creeps up on them. They're not aware that the stimulator is turned off. There's no acute rebound effect. It's very clear that whatever this is doing mechanistically, it's creating a new rhythm that allows normal brain function to work around it, because if it's not there, patients will relapse. Now, on the flip side, we aren't seeing side effects developing over time. And like I said, we've got at least the first six patients that are out, all of them, close to five years. You don't lose the effect over time. You don't develop side effects over time. So there's no part of dyskinesia or some kind of delayed side effect, at least up to this point. And so once it's on, it's out of your mind, and patients have done remarkably well. They haven't relapsed. They can have periods, particularly if they have life events, where they certainly have preserved mood regulation. This doesn't take away the dynamic range of one's mood. But, in fact, they describe being more resilient. They can get through life stressors in a way they could not prior and we haven't had um, frank relapses 
And I think that is what's most interesting scientifically is, you know, there may be a number of ways you can get people out of an acute episode. I mean, ECT can get people effectively out of episode, but it's not very good at keeping you there, particularly as you get more intractable in your illness. Well, it's fascinating research, and I think the questions sound like they are endless. Thank you for the great conversation, Dr. Mayberg. It was good talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Helen Mayberg, Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology at Emory University School of Medicine. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.